The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The last time the Cubs won the World Series, it was yesterday. Mayflies born before the Cubs won the World Series are still alive. Internet memes that were popular at the time the Cubs won the World Series are still popular. Of the 12 top-grossing movies the year the Cubs won the World Series, four were derived from comic books and six featured talking animals. In other words, the last time the Cubs won the World Series, we had to go to the movies to see animals talk. Also, we said go to the movies. That's crazy, right? Oh, you didn't hear the Cubs won the World Series? Pat Hughes of 670 The Score has the call. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time! And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. So you may think this says something profound or even transcendent about underdogs or never giving up or perhaps more mundanely about overusing your relief pitchers. Listen to Hang Up and Listen's Emergency Cubs Win podcast for more on that. But what this really says is this. The Cubs have ruined their brand. You knew one thing, one thing about North American team sports. You knew that Derek Jeter gave gift baskets to his overnight house guests. Maybe he got one of those gift baskets. No, what you knew was this. A, the Yankees win and B, the Cubs lose. But the Yankees don't always win. They even don't usually win the World Series. But the Cubs always lose it. They've always lost. Everyone you know has only known the Cubs to be World Series losers, unless you know one of the approximately 450 Americans age 108 or older. And by the way, of those, most of them are under 110, so they really couldn't form memories of the Cubs winning. And now the Cubs have up and ruined their brand. They're just some other punk baseball team owned by billionaires who probably donate to Donald Trump. The Ricketts do donate to Donald Trump, though not the sister. They probably got, I don't know, a Dominican second baseman, and sometimes they wear the stirrup socks, and sometimes they wear the pajama-style pants. Great. Chicago Cubs, you're the new Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, some team that won a World Series in the last hundred years. Win two? Great. You're the Marlins. So there's that to shoot for. On the show today, I reveal an actual media bias that's actually pretty bad. But first, Adam Davidson stops by to talk about what should be America's tax policy, but ain't gonna be. We're joined now by Adam Davidson of The New Yorker. And when Adam comes by and we talk about politics and we talk about economics, we usually do it through this prism. Candidate A has these proposals. Candidate B has those proposals. Which proposals are better? Let's not do that. Let's suspend or dispense with that convention because Donald Trump has proposals and contradictory proposals and a 45% tariff that we have talked about on this show that no one buys into. But also, he famously did not pay his federal taxes for years and years and years. And beyond that, the New York Times recently revealed that he got out of paying his taxes by a tax scheme that his own advisors told him was really risky and is no longer legal, but seems to have been legal then. With that in mind, Adam Davidson joins me. Hi, Adam. 
How are you? I'm well, Mike. I miss you very much. Oh, it's yeah. been too long. What are you doing with The New Yorker? I'm writing about business, economics, tech, sometimes politics. And, Good. Yeah, Good. Let's like talk about all that because this is okay. what I want to do. This isn't a Donald Trump idea. This is a Donald Trump revelation, which is we saw what his taxes were. And here's how I want to put it to you. His loss may be illegitimate or his loss might be unethically stated if allowed by the law. But once he has that loss, taking it over a series of years, I mean, I've talked to some tax experts. That's essentially a good thing. We want that, right? We want to be able to kind of lessen the pain of a big loss just to get more money invested again. The biggest secret, which I just hate even saying, it's one of those things that like most economists believe, but most non-economists find objectionable. But I would say a broad view from the very from the left to the right is we should not be taxing businesses at all. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't that we should only tax individuals. We should tax consumption, not business. Because this is for a whole, whole that's a long, boring conversation. Or no, it's a long, fascinating conversation. But let's <laughs> but it's a long conversation. <laughs> we right don't want to get person, into yes, it. Yes. Yeah. But if you think about what we want businesses to do, we want them to be competing and and fighting it out in the marketplace, creating products and services that people like, creating jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And and taxing that, taxing the sort of creation side of our economy is is just it's gonna make it a less healthy economy. It's going to be bad for everybody involved. So anyway, that's one thing. This was his personal tax return, but it's a complicated thing because it's business income that then flows through to and, and business losses that then flow through. There's another idea, and this is similar to the philosophical support for bankruptcy protection, which is we want business to be taking risks Mm -hmm. and we want businesses to be thinking over a longer period of time than just any given year. And so if we had a rule that basically if you make zero dollars, you don't pay taxes. But if you make negative ten dollars, that's it. It's all locked up in this one year or negative a million dollars or negative a billion dollars. It's all locked up in, you know, 1996 or 2016. Like, in other words, at the end of the year, you're basically starting over. Mm-hmm. And and so if you think about not Donald Trump, if you take him out of your mind, but you have like, I don't know, a young Sergey Brin or a young Steve Jobs or some business person you like and you're glad that they took risks, if you have that person in your mind, you want them willing to take risks that might not pay off for several years. That's good That overall. We want people to be thinking longer term. You don't get the kind of transformative big ideas if people aren't thinking long term. And if you didn't have the ability to carry over your losses from this year to next year to the year after that to the year after that, you just, on average, you're going to, people are going to take fewer risks. That's not to say they won't take any or that every inventor or new business person is only motivated by like saving money on taxes. But, but we, also practically, if they have, if you lose a hundred million one year, but then the next year you make a hundred million, you don't feel like a hundred millionaire. You feel like a guy maybe who broke even. But if the government's hitting you up for 30 million in taxes, you might not even take the risk to make the hundred million. Right. Exactly. We, we have a tax system that is supposed to be reasonably smart mm-hmm. about how it impacts people's behavior. Now, there's lots of debates there. This is why there's things like the carried interest, which I think most economists would say is not a good idea. It's why 
why Warren Buffett famously pays less percent, a lower percentage of his income than his secretary does, because we think about this stuff. And there are other there are lots of controversies, I guess, is what I'm saying in how you would use the tax code to either promote risk taking or at the very least not dissuade it. And so it would be a terrible outcome of this if we said, OK, yeah, that Trump thing, no more. You know, you got to pay taxes on what you made that year. Yeah. And losing one dollar is the same as losing a billion dollars. You just you don't pay any taxes that year. But the next year you you start from scratch. That would be a very bad precedent, even if Donald Trump probably did abuse yeah. it. And it, it probably in this one case was not I, I'm not going to sit here and say Donald Trump. Boy, we really won with that one. We An really incentivized. Yeah, we yes, really incentivized yes. the right behavior. To the extent that an election uh, gives us some new ideas, perhaps creates mandates, but gives momentum behind policies, and now we're talking about tax policies, did this general election, probably not, but maybe the primary election actually light the fire under some good or bad tax policies as you see it? Huh. I think there is some low-hanging fruit that you could get in a unconstrained universe. You could get Paul Ryan and Hillary Clinton. Like if we're assuming Paul Ryan's going to be Speaker of, of a majority Republican House mm -hmm. and the Democrats maybe take the Senate and Hillary Clinton is going to be president, there's some low-hanging fruit that a lot of people support on both sides of the aisle. You know, I remember – you know, during the Obama-Romney campaign, I, I had a lot of fun pointing out that, you know, oh, they're tax and spend. Oh, they only care about – they think everyone's a moocher. But their actual tax policies were really close. Like if, if I remember correctly, Romney was – you know, thought it, there should be a 20% corporate tax and Obama thought there should be a 25% yeah. corporate tax. Yeah. The difference in their top marginal tax rate for individuals was like 3 or 4%. And it, it was – these were – really within within shooting distance. And you could easily imagine a reasonable people sitting around going, you want 20, I want 25, let's do 22 and a half and call it a day. And and Ryan seems to be the you know somebody who would be up for that. And so like here's just a simple, simple thing that earned income tax credit. It is was a Republican idea, came out of Milton Friedman. It's very much liked on the right. Oh, it's really loved on the left too. Yeah, and it's yeah. loved on the left. Yeah. It's like a universe, almost universally loved idea. It it basically is the government using the tax code to subsidize work. Basically, if you have a job but you make below a threshold, the government doesn't take money from you, it gives you money. But the bulk of it works if you have dependent children. So it's largely a subsidy to women with dependent children and uh you know women with dependent children get something like 6000 something on average but men who very often do have children but they're not living with those children they can't claim them as dependents typically will make like 500 a, a year not 6000 and and it it ends up being a disincentive to work so you can do some things to the tax code that actually would increase the likelihood of family formation so like it it, it's not guaranteeing everyone's going to get married and be a responsible parent, but it takes away a tax incentive for the women not to get married. And it will you know, do this public policy that we all like, but extend it to young men. And right now, poor young men are our nation's – that is the you know, dark core of yeah. our inequality crisis is poor young men. I mean women are doing way better than men on average. So that would just be an example of a, a tax policy that – is just obvious 
bipartisan. And isn't it easy. funny though that we get there? If uh, my original construction of elections as laboratories of ideas, or let's work out the best solutions, we've totally bypassed Trump because he's incoherent on questions of taxation and economic policy. But you're saying that Paul Ryan, if he represents this, the kind of standard thinking of Republican thought, and Hillary Clinton could get together on this easily, easily, easily. Yeah. And again, the point I made it with Obama Romney, you know, Obama's chief economic advisor early on was Larry Summers. Um, Romney's was uh, Glenn Hubbard. Mm -hmm. They were both trained by the same person, Marty Feldstein at Harvard. They both have very similar backgrounds, very similar approaches. They have different political views. They, they come to different conclusions, but in a very similar way, it's very easy. I wrote a joint profile of the two of them to make this point. So I don't think this will happen because I think the Trumpiness in the air, whether Trump decides to keep it alive or not, will constrain Paul Ryan dramatically. Right, or to be more tangible than Trumpiness, if Trump has an effect on down-ballot races, the kind of Republicans who will be in Paul Ryan's coalition, even if they are in the majority, they'll probably, the moderate ones or ones in moderate districts will be picked off. Yeah, So exactly. there'll be more Tea Party. He'll, he'll be um, presiding over a smaller coalition, but it will be more Tea Party-ish and more extreme and less likely to get together with uh, Hillary Clinton. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But also terrible. Interesting and terrible. It is terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think that <laughs> is the depressing conclusion I am fully coming to now. It seems highly unlikely that, that Trump will become the president. It's now like, oh, but America's just a worse country for a while. It's Maybe. just, yeah. Even uh, this, even with a Democratic Senate, if the House is still Republican and yeah. ardently Tea Party. Uh, anything the president could do by fiat unilaterally to get... I mean, not with tax. Tax is tough. And um, Billy Thomas, who is the very conservative Republican head of the House Ways and Means Committee under George W. Bush, who did the big Bush tax cuts. I remember talking to him and he's that was an interesting conversation because Billy Thomas is a famously like angry, tough, conservative street brawler. But when I actually just got him on the phone, he had a lot of very sensible tax policy ideas. He supported a VAT. He supported I, I never talked to him about the CITC thing, although I feel confident he would support it. He was someone you could do business child, with. Child interest. but Earned income, earned tax, income tax, tax credit. credit. Yes. But then, so when I asked him, like, why is it so tough when really the Democrats and the Republicans are not that far apart on a lot of basic tax issues? And um, so, you know, there's two big issues. One is it's just helpful to draw contrasts. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's why on your show, you're constantly saying how crappy the political gab fest yeah, is yeah. and how Talk awful it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They they're, don't they're embody terrible. real values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also said, he just said, it would shock you the amount, the lack of information the average congressperson has on taxes. That, yeah. Um, even on the House Ways and Means Committee, he said, if you can't explain it in a minute, they will never learn it. It's just impossible. And so- on the one hand, that gives a lot of power to elites like Paul Ryan to really drive the conversation. But on the other hand, it also gives a lot of power to people like Donald Trump, who, if he decides to maintain the role of the spoiler, the closer Ryan gets to um, any kind of agreement, you know, Donald Trump just has to tweet, Ryan's trying to sell you out. And, you know, a million Trump supporters call their local congresspeople who say no. So I think... Tax policy is probably the least controversial 
it's on the list of the least controversial issues in economics. There's a lot that's just settled, like mm-hmm. we know. And a group of technocrats could very quickly rewrite our tax code. That is not the problem there is not ideas. You know, it's the political system that makes it impossible. So it's not it's not Syria where it's like there literally are no good options right. and you just have to pick a bad option. It's lots of great options, but politically it just isn't going to happen. Well, with a note of optimism, we're close, but pessimism, isn't it frustrating? Therefore, more frustrating that we can't get to an agreement is Adam Davidson. He covers taxes <laughs> and economics for The New Yorker. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I want to let you in on the greatest bias in reporting of news stories, and it is this. There is a bias towards stories. Stories are drama. Drama is conflict. And in an election, conflict is when things are tight, are close, are neck and neck. And things are tightening on a national level, which is to say the gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is smaller today than it was a week or two ago. But it is persistent, and it is a gap and it is measurable. There is no evidence that things are tightening to the point where you wouldn't say that Hillary isn't the overwhelming favorite. I guess that depends on what your threshold for overwhelming is. I think that a lot of people, though, have a low threshold because they seem overwhelmed. So this is for them. Think of it this way. If this was a neck-and-neck race, and for months it has been, and we were habituated to that reality, if the polls in the last couple weeks started showing exactly what they've been showing, we would say, wow, things are going great for Hillary Clinton. Things are really breaking for her. But since they're not trending in that direction, since they're trending in the other direction, it seems like momentum. But momentum means it's going to carry forward tomorrow, and there's not much evidence of that. Of course, it might seem like momentum for Trump, precisely because this is the impression that news media wants to give. They want to make you think that it is a very close race. They want to get you nervous. They want your attention. And a stunning new poll of Colorado from the University of Denver has the race tied. Well, stunning if you don't report the other Colorado polls. There have been five polls taken in Colorado that included at least some days when voters had learned about the new FBI email investigation. The results of those polls were Clinton up three, Clinton up seven, Clinton up one, Clinton up four. And then there was this one from a good pollster, actually a smaller sample size than any of those other polls, but a good pollster. But it's the only one where attention is being paid. It's stunning. That's the definition of news. I know this is new. It's new that a poll shows that Clinton isn't winning in Colorado. But that might not be the most accurate poll. That might not be the best way to convey what the polls are saying in Colorado. And here's another media trope. Hailing your own poll to the exclusion of other polls. When you do your own poll, like ABC and Washington Post, they get together, they do a poll, and that poll shows something surprising. Well, it's hard for a news organization with a bias towards tightness not to go a little nuts. First, what you do is you define your reality. Here's this week from ABC. October shocker. This is the biggest political scandal since Watergate. Donald Trump gets a big boost thanks to the FBI. Trump got a big boost. It is asserted before the boost can actually be empirically measured. And then this poll number is cited by my count over 20 times in the course of Sunday's show. Clinton also shaking off our latest poll, which shows the tightest race in weeks. 
It has her ahead by just one point, 46 to 45, an 11 point drop from last Sunday. I understand it's an ABC poll. You're ABC. But put it in context. They do, a little bit. Stephanopoulos says, sure, there are some other polls that show her with a bigger lead. But to be doubly sure, the instinct is Blair the headline, talk of a nail biter. I would say it's not a nail biter. It's not a hair puller. Maybe it's a head scratcher. I will concede it is not a salt scrub exfoliation in a soothing day spa. But still, things are close. She is winning. Take a breath. Get some rest. Refresh Upshot and Daily Coast and the Princeton Election Consortium in addition to the 538 model. I am not going to talk you off the ledge. How do you get to that ledge in the first place? It's dangerous on a ledge and it's easy to fall off. And don't rely on hanging on by your fingernail because you already bit that off. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is rooting for Charlie Brown to kick the football, avoid the tree with his kite, and get that little red-haired girl to swipe right. Just producer Chris Berube points out that all those things basically happened in the Peanuts film, which tells you everything you need to know about pandering to youth. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, points out that the Peanuts film didn't have a talking animal, though Snoopy was anthropomorphized, and didn't have a comic book character as much as a comic strip one. And Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wants you to know that the two non-talking animal comic book movies in the top 12 were Jason Bourne and Star Trek, because he knows you were wondering. The gist, now the longest winless streak in North American team sports is the Libertarian Party. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.